looking at verse 7 this morning, the third commandment. Typically what we do here is pick a book of the Bible and just kind of go through it verse by verse until we get to the end. We are taking a short break for that for about 10 weeks to cover the Ten Commandments, and this is the third week of that. So we're on the third commandment from Exodus chapter 20, looking only at verse 7 this morning. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Imagine with me this scenario. There's a man who walks into the American embassy in a foreign country. Pick the country. Let's say Brazil. He says he's in trouble. He lost his passport. And he needs to get out of the country. They ask him if he's an American citizen. And he says, yes, absolutely, I am. I am a U.S. citizen. I love America. So they run a check on his identity. And they can't really find anything on him. So they come back and they ask him again. They said, you're sure you're a citizen, right? You have a a passport somewhere. Give us your name, your social security number. Tell us the information we need to be able to find you. And he says, absolutely, I am a citizen. You bet. Would you like for me to prove it to you? Oh, say can you see? And he sings the entire national anthem right before them, right there in that moment to prove to them that he is an American citizen. The guards say, okay, they shrug their shoulders, and they go back and uh, check one more time. It comes back again, nothing. There's no information about this guy. There's nothing that indicates that he actually is a U.S. citizen. So they come back, and they ask him, okay, so were you born in the U.S., or did you become a citizen later? And he says, uh, both. Uh, I did both of those things. And to prove it to them one more time, he pledges allegiance to the flag of the United States of America right in front of them. So then now they have to ask, because nothing he said is making, is making any sense. They said, what makes you so sure that you're a citizen? And he says, well, I just told you guys I was, didn't I? He said, well, that's not how it works. You can't just say that you're a citizen and have that actually be true. And he said, no, 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 I didn't say it. I declared it. I am a U.S. citizen. I said so. You heard me. So what do you think the guards are going to do in that instance? They're going to throw him out. He's got about half a second to get out of the U.S. Embassy before they take him by his shirt collar and they throw him out themselves. When he said he was an American citizen, did that have any actual effect on his citizenship, on who he actually was in their eyes? Do you think that he was thinking of the right things as he said those words? Do you think he was actively hoping to uphold the U.S. Constitution? So when he said that, Ultimately, what happened was he took the name of an American, and it was in vain, wasn't it? It was in vain even though he wasn't cursing America with his words, even though he may have sincerely in that moment thought by saying those words, it would actually make him a citizen. This guy was taking the name of U.S. citizen in vain. And this morning, we're looking at the third commandment in Exodus 20, verse 7. And we're going to answer the same four questions that we have answered for each of our weeks in the Ten Commandments so far. First of all, what's wrong with breaking this command? Second, how do we break this command today? What does that look like? Third, how has Christ fulfilled or transformed the command for us as New Testament Christians? And then what do we do now as New Testament believers in order to fulfill this command, to follow it today? But before we get to our four questions, which we will answer this morning, I think we need to make sure we understand what's being said here, what God is actually communicating in this verse 7, this third commandment. When he says that we shall not take his name in vain, 
that's not really language we use, is it? It's not language we typically understand. When he says don't murder, don't steal, we inherently know, okay, I know what he's talking about. We might not understand the fullness of it. We might not understand all of the implications, but we know if he says don't murder, then murder, killing someone else, is wrong. Good. I understand what that means. We can figure out even something that might be as obscure as the images command from last week. He gives us enough context. We know what images are. We can put some of those things together. But what is taking a name in vain? Are taking a name and saying the name the same thing? How do you do that in vain? Do you fail to say it? Do you say it vainly, as in self-centered, you're so vain, you probably think this command is about you? It's, it's a confusing phrase when we think about it, when we hear those words. So here's how I'm going to define it briefly before we get to our questions. Taking God's name in vain is invoking his person and character lightly or incorrectly. We'll talk about the fullness of what that looks like more fully in a moment, but we take God's name in vain when we invoke, when we say, we, we cite or call upon him as God lightly, flippantly, carelessly, when we don't do it with the reverence that we should be doing it with. So if the first thing you think of when you hear this command is about people cussing, or maybe even people saying, oh my gosh, because they shouldn't say that. I don't think you're wrong to include those things in this commandment's prohibition. But I don't think it's actually the emphasis here, and I think it's certainly not the fullness of what God is saying, of what God is prohibiting in this commandment. I think it's true. We'll talk about that. But I don't want you to be caught off guard when this the whole rest of the sermon isn't about the language that you say as much as it is the way in which you say, the way in which you think, the way in which you live in light of God's name. I'm not going to spend this whole time talking about language because I think there's actually a bigger, a deeper issue here in the text that God is prohibiting more so than merely the use of his actual literal name in our mouths. So with that definition in mind, to take the Lord your God in vain, to take his name in vain, is to invoke him lightly. Why is it wrong for us to do this? Why is taking his name a bad thing to do? Our first question this morning. Well, in the context of this verse, the most immediate reason we shouldn't do this is because whoever does so is guilty in God's eyes. Look back at verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. He won't hold him guiltless. And I think the reason he says this actually gives us a clue as to what God is actually prohibiting here. Because he could have said this same thing after each of the other nine commandments, right? He could have said, do not murder, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, the one who murders. All of these are bad things. Surely there's not something specifically bad about this one that it means that you are guilty, whereas the other nine are actually okay. You know what? Actually, the murder one, God can look past that. One fewer human, that's a rounding error in the heavens. It's not that big a deal. You can still be guiltless. But the name thing, that's the problem. I think the reason he has to highlight this specifically is because the one who takes his name in vain God will not hold him guiltless, even though it looks like he should be holding him guiltless. It looks like this guy isn't guilty. 
it looks like he hasn't done anything wrong. And God has to clarify that he has done something wrong. He will not be held guiltless. He is guilty before God. There has to be something about this one that makes God clarify this fact. And I think that that's because someone committing this sin might actually think, it might appear to an impartial third party as if they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. I mean, they're, they're saying his name, right? They're invoking him, right? Surely only holy people, people who love and worship and serve him, only they would be the ones saying his name. Only they would be the ones who are calling upon him in their lives. You see, I think this commandment isn't primarily about the problem with our language because the one using his name as a curse word is so obviously blaspheming him that they wouldn't meet that criteria. That he doesn't have to highlight that they're not guiltless, that they're guilty, because we all know that. We can all see that. This commandment is way more, I think, about hypocrisy than language. It's about thinking of God lightly while you claim to be part of his family while you pray outwardly, while you say his name. He's clarifying that these people are guilty because it's not obvious to us that they are. But taking his name in vain, committing that act of hypocrisy, that's a problem because you shouldn't take it in vain. You should take it in truth. You should take it in reality. You should be meaning what you say when you say it. You should be reverently referring to the God that you claim as your Lord. The first commandment was about who we worship. The second was about how we worship. The third is about the authenticity of our worship. We can't just claim him and say that we're good. We have to follow through in truth, in reality, not in vain, but in truth, authentically. And we're prone to be hypocrites. But without this command, the other seven really don't matter, do they? It's funny how these keep building. Without worshiping God alone, who cares what he says? Who cares what he's commanded? Without worshiping the true God, we can't interpret these commands in whatever way that we want to. Without taking him in truth, without avoiding that hypocrisy, without a life which actually lines up with what we claim, what we speak, there's no follow-through on the rest of the commands that we have here. There's no execution on us not committing adultery, not coveting, not bearing false witness. Merely saying that you're not committing adultery is what literally every cheater on the planet has ever said, right? You can say it all day, but they are saying it in vain. What actually matters is avoiding adultery. And if you need your spouse to confirm that for you, I promise they will. If you ask them, if all I do is say that I haven't committed adultery, is that enough for you? They will very quickly say, no, you have to actually not commit adultery to meet this command for me to be happy with you. It's wrong to take his name. It's wrong to invoke him lightly because it shows us to be guilty. We should be taking his name in truth, in reality. And he has to tell us this is wrong, just like he does for the other nine commandments, because it's something we're prone to do. We are prone to be hypocritical when we claim his name. So what are the ways that we do that? How do we do this in vain? How do we break this commandment? How do we mess this up? I'll give three ways quickly this morning. First, I think it's in the definition that I've already given. 
we break this commandment to not take his name in vain when we say his name lightly, when we treat him and therefore his name without reverence, when we think it's a frivolous thing to speak God's name, we've taken it in vain. So yes, absolutely. I think using God's name as a curse word is wrong. That breaks the commandment, in case you were wondering this morning. If you thought that me redefining this primarily as about hypocrisy rather than language meant that you had a whole new realm of expletives open to you, you are incorrect. You cannot use his name as a curse word and not break this commandment. I'm sorry, it's not happening. But the same reason an actual curse word using his name is wrong also shows us that simply throwing his name out there is wrong. Doing it flippantly even if it's not explicitly, incorrectly, culturally, it's still wrong. If your first instinct is to say, oh my God, when you ate a chocolate chip cookie that is really, really good, I think you're probably in danger of this as well. His name is not a reflexive sound for us. It's the reverent reminder of who he is. We shouldn't invoke him or his name so flippantly to equate his goodness with the goodness of a Chippehoy cookie. It's not the same thing. Now, what I'm not going to do this morning is to spend the other 30 minutes that I've got going down a long list of all the phrases that I think that you should avoid, because I think that actually misses the point of what we're talking about here. We can't focus on a particular combination of letters, because that's just human language, which is conveying ideas. But when you say the combination of sounds, which in your head brings to mind the Lord of all creation, I think you should think carefully about the context and the reason why you say those sounds and when you say them. I think it does matter what we say. And while we're still in this language realm, before we move on uh, to widen and think about other things, but while still widening the focus a little bit to less obvious ways that our words can break this command, I think we have to also be careful how and when we invoke him, even if it appears to be a reverent way for us to do so. I'm talking about the the Christianese phrases that we might use without even really considering what it is that we're actually saying. Here's an example. God told me to. While I won't deny that we can pray to God for guidance, I won't deny that we can receive that guidance through his Holy Spirit in his word, but then also I think an inner working there. I think we need to be very, very careful when we say that God has told us to do something. We prayed about what car to buy, and God told us it was the Toyota. Absolutely. He made it clear. That's the one for us. Absolutely. No doubt in my mind. When the girl in middle school came to you and said, hey, I've been praying, I don't think God wants us to be together. I think we have to break up. I don't think she was actually obeying this commandment in this sense even if she probably shouldn't have been dating you in middle school. I think she was taking this too lightly, too irreverently. I think we need to be very careful when we say that God has told us to do something. On a more serious note, if I came up here one day and I said that I'd been praying and God told me to do something for us as a church, what we're going to do is we are going to rename our body of believers together. We are no longer Pleasant Grove Baptist Church. We are now Pheasant Grove Baptist Church. God's called us to reach hunters, and I think this name change is really going to help us to get all of those guys who just love pheasant hunting. And I said, no, no, no. 
We're going to vote on it at the end of the service today. Remember, God told me that we should do this. Well, what position have I put you in whenever I say that? You have heard the dumbest idea that you've ever heard in this room, and I have told you that if you disobey that idea, you're going against God's will. I think I took God's name in vain in that instance. I think I'm trying to bind your conscience by using his name to get what I want whenever I'm talking to you. So it's certainly not wrong to pray for guidance. And it's certainly not wrong to act in light of the guidance that you receive. But when you communicate that, I think you owe it to the believers around you not to bind their conscience by saying that you are absolutely on God's side of that issue, especially if that may not actually be the case. We break the commandment by saying his name lightly, by invoking him too lightly. But I think we also break it through simply overt hypocrisy. I think that's the the clearest way that this commandment is broken today in this text. We take his name in vain when we claim to be Christians without any intention of actually following through on that claim. If we are clear and obvious hypocrites using the banner of Christianity to do whatever we want to do, to abuse our fellow church members, or to get a leg up in our political career, to make sure that a certain voting bloc votes for us, I think that's breaking the third commandment. Snakes in the grass, wolves in sheep's clothing, they take his name in vain, and therefore they are not held guiltless before the God who sees, even if they might have been able to fool mere mortals. Paul, in speaking directly to this issue of hypocrites in the church who are leading other people astray, said this to Titus, Titus 1.16, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. When we hypocritically claim to be Christians in one setting and knowingly shed that identity to the instant that we leave this room, we're breaking this command. We're professing to know God, but we're denying him by our works. We're claiming his name, but taking it in vain with our lives. But I actually think that the overt hypocrite, the one who is clearly and obviously breaking this command, though he exists, is actually pretty rare here in this room today. Most of us don't leave double lives in that more obvious sense. Most of us aren't sitting here on Sunday morning and then conducting hits for the mob on Tuesday nights. So overt hypocrisy breaks the command, sure, but that doesn't implicate most of us. However, I think accidental hypocrisy, I think that still breaks this command. And I think accidental hypocrisy actually covers every single person in this room. We break the command by being hypocrites even accidentally, even in a less obvious way. If you claim to be a Christian but go home and worship Satan in your spare time, you are obviously a hypocrite and you are breaking this command. But I think you are probably breaking this command just as much if you claim to be a Christian and then go home and you worship the hogs in your spare time. If you go home and worship your stuff, your money in your spare time. If you go home and worship pornography in your spare time. You may not be meaning to be a hypocrite. And you might not think of yourself in that way. You might think that you are simply a Christian who messes up sometimes, and we all are. Absolutely, in one way or another. But that doesn't make us any less hypocritical. 
Luke 6, 46, Christ says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus is calling out his hearers in that verse. But if you look at the context, I don't think he's going specifically after obvious hypocrites. He wasn't talking directly to the Pharisees there. He's simply going off after the Christians who believe themselves to be reverently calling him Lord, Lord, but are not taking that same call into every area of their lives. They mean it when they say Lord, Lord, and they forget that they meant it when they go out into the rest of their lives and do whatever else they're doing. They've got the language right, but they aren't doing what he's told them. I think he's talking to us in this verse. At any point when our lives don't match up with the character of the God we claim, when we're his children, but we don't act like part of the family, then we're hypocrites. Even if we don't do that on purpose, whatever on purpose means in that context. When I remind you of the good and perfect father who loves you and died for you and saves you through his perfect patience on a Sunday morning, when I preach those words to you in that way, but then I go home and I just lose my cool at JC simply because she's a toddler who has already lost her cool to me in that moment. I think that makes me a hypocrite. I don't do it on purpose. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I don't think it's a common pattern in my life. I don't think I'm doing it every Sunday afternoon the instant I get home. But I'd be lying if I said it never happened. And when it does... In those instances, I think I have taken the Lord's name in vain. Now, I want to be careful here at this point of the sermon in which you might be sitting there and feel at your most convicted. I think when we're confronted by our sins, when we feel the prick of our conscience calling us to repent, I actually think that's a very good thing for us to experience. It's a good reminder for us that we're sinners. It's helpful for us to remember that even though we are Christians, we are not perfect We have to learn to lean into that call rather than away from it. Because a Christian isn't a Christian because we're perfect. We're Christians because he is perfect. We're Christians not because we do all he's told us to exactly, but because we've repented and believed in his perfection on our behalf for every sin and failing we have ever and will ever commit. That's what makes us Christians. So I don't want to lessen the weight of the law on you this morning as you feel it sitting on you right now in your hypocrisy. But I absolutely want to remind you of the strength and the power of the one who saved you from that law. As impossible as it might feel for you to stand up under the law's weight, as many sins as are going through your head right now, all the ways that you fall short of this command, not to mention the other nine, I don't want you to think that Christ hasn't seen your sin because he has. He saw it in its fullness. He saw every sin that was going through your head just a moment ago. And he chose to fulfill the law on your behalf so that the weight of your sin might no longer crush you because the weight of your sin has already crushed him on the cross. As terrible hypocrites as we may be, as often as we take his name in vain, he died for us anyway. He loves us anyway. He paid for our sins 
anyway, every single one of those, all the times that we take his name in vain, were nailed to Jesus on the cross. He came and died for those who have broken this commandment. Whether we've done so by saying his name lightly, by being overt hypocrites, or maybe by being hypocrites accidentally. He died for us all the same. And I think that's certainly a way that he has fulfilled and transformed this command for us. By atoning for the sins of those who break this command, which is all of us. But I think he has also fulfilled it by consistently following through as God every second. And he's transformed it by encouraging us to count the cost of following him. That's, that's the answer to our third question. How has Jesus fulfilled or transformed this command for us today? He's fulfilled the command by never once taking God's name in vain. He was the Messiah, bearing God's name literally. Jesus means God saves, Yahweh saves. And his entire life was not in vain, but in truth, in reality. It was a life lived as belonging to God because it was his life who is God. Jesus was absolutely never a hypocrite. His walk perpetually matched his talk. There's nothing he said which he did not do, and all that he did was exactly what he was supposed to do every second of every day for his entire life. Hypocrisy is something I have to reflect on all the time as a pastor and preacher, not simply just because I'm human and I think we need to reflect on it, but particularly for me in my role in this church. I have to always think about this and be reminded of it because all humans are hypocrites, right? We are simply incapable of perfect execution of our ideals because we're, we're sinners. We have a fallen nature. But as a pastor, I think I am probably more hypocritical than every single other person in this room. And I think there's an element of that that's by design. Every week, what I do is I stand up and I read the words of God to you. I try my best to explain it, to give you the sense of what he is saying. I tell you all the ways that you're falling short of it, all the things you should be doing differently. I remind you of the gospel and of God's love for you. In a perfect sermon, which I have yet to preach, I would have spoken only what God would say and what God has said. And then I walk off the stage and I spend a whole week falling absolutely short of everything that I just said, of messing up in all the ways that I just told you guys not to of failing to perfectly fulfill all the things I told you that you should be doing. I do that all week. I fall short of what I presented to you. And if there ever comes a week that I don't do that, that means I didn't preach high enough to you. My options are to continue to give you the fullness of God's word the best way that I know how, and then just completely jack it up for a whole week. Or... I can say, well, God didn't actually say that. God doesn't make it that hard on you. God doesn't ask that much of you. And I bring his word down to my life and flatten it. And I leave you with nothing of the words of God and only the words of Nathan. And I can't do that. It's not my job to do that. I can't bring the sermon down to my life because then all you would be getting is me. I have to preach as high as I can and then spend a week remembering how far off I am from what I've said. That's my job. That's my burden as your pastor. But let me remind you that Jesus never once had to do that. 
He didn't lessen any commands that he gave us. He didn't have to think, oh, I told him to do that, but I wasn't able to fulfill it. Every moment of every day, he fulfilled every command perfectly. His life is actually more perfect than we understand it to be. Simply because our understanding is limited by our human language, by our finite minds to be able to understand it. We can't even comprehend what it looks like for Jesus to avoid hypocrisy, and yet he absolutely did. And this wasn't just because his words came down to meet his life. No, he fulfilled the command by speaking every word in the name of the Lord. It all invoked the God of the universe, and none of his words were spoken in vain. And in those words, he transformed this command by encouraging us to count the cost of following him. In Exodus, God was telling them to pay the cost with their entire lives, down to the very words that they spoke, down to their identity as God's chosen people. And in the New Testament, Christ took that same idea, and he made it even more plain for us. We'll see this more clearly as we continue in our Ten Commandments series. Jesus consistently takes the command from the Old Testament, and he blows it up. He doesn't lessen its requirement. He takes the requirements, and he turns them up to eleven. He makes it way harder for us to fulfill this law. He shows us the root causes of our sins, our fallen nature, that we are incapable of fulfilling the law on our own behalf. I think it might be less obvious with the third commandment, but I think he does that same thing here. He tells his followers that claiming the name of Christ bears a cost. It can't be done so lightly. It can't be done in vain. He does this in Matthew 8.20. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Following Jesus, the life he calls you to, the life that does not take the name of the Lord in vain, will cost your comforts. You could be called to a life of sacrifice where no house awaits you. You have no pillow to lay your head. You may have to leave behind the ordinary comforts and courtesies of life, even something like burying your own parents. They might die without you while you're a missionary in a foreign land. And yet, Christ warns you, consider this. Consider that cost in following him. And he keeps going on that idea in Luke 14, 28 through 30 says this, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. He's saying you should take all of this, everything I'm saying to you, into account actually before you sign up for the Christian life. Before you take God's name, before you identify yourself with his people, you should make sure that you are all in, that you're willing to follow through with your talk and to identify your entire life with the name of Jesus Christ. And we don't really talk that way in evangelism very often, do we? It's not usually part of our pitch when we're talking to non-believers, Hey, you know what you should do? You should come and give your life to Jesus. Your parents might have to bury themselves. Do you like your bed? Well, let me tell you about a God who might ask you to leave it behind. That's a very different presentation than the usual, hey, you want to go to heaven, don't you? 
Repeat these words. That's all it takes. Now, don't worry about repentance, changed life, actual belief or faith. It's all of grace. You'll be fine. Don't worry about the church. You don't have to show up to be saved for after all. Just repeat after me. Come, we'll baptize you next Sunday. If I never see you again, I know you're fine. But that's not how Jesus evangelized, was it? So I think that we need to remember the cost of true Christianity even on the front end when we're trying to give the gospel to the people around us. But perhaps the biggest ask, the highest cost that Christ asks his followers to pay is the cost of our very lives. Luke 14, 25-27, just before those verses we just read. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, the Christian life is not a life that's filled with health, wealth, and prosperity. It's a call to come and die. It's a call to follow our Savior to the cross and to be willing to be crucified right alongside him. He transformed this idea from the third commandment by turning it up to 11. Don't just worry about your words. Don't just choose different words in which to say whatever you're trying to say when you're saying those curse words. You should worry about your life. If you're going to avoid claiming the name of God, the identity of Christian in vain, in doing so lightly, then you have to be aware of the fullness of the cost that you might be asked to pay. Christ paid the full cost of a Godward life, and he encourages you now to do the same. Which brings us to our final question. What are we to do? As New Testament Christians hoping to obey this command after it has been both fulfilled and transformed by Christ, what does that look like for us? Well, quickly again, three actions that we can take. First, I think we can take the Christian life seriously. I think that's the best thing for us to do right now. If this sin is actually primarily about claiming the name of God, claiming to be a part of his people while ignoring him and his commands, then we who would claim to be his people should understand the gravity of that claim. Christian is not simply some box you check on a form or a poll for us. It has to be a consistent identity across the board. It has to impact every single area of our lives. Hypocrisy, though to some degree it's inevitable, should be avoided as much as it can. We should be zealous about our faith. We don't simply have our names on the membership role here at church. We are integrated into the life and health of this church, of these people. We don't just go to church when we have nothing better to do. We know every Saturday night that when we wake up, this is where we're ending up. When we don't just show up when we get here, we worship, we sing, we listen, we participate. We form relationships with the people around us, old and young, new and well-known. And our faith doesn't simply find its fullest culmination in showing up here on a Sunday morning and doing those things. We find outlets for it in the rest of our lives as well. We look, think, act, and talk like Christians the rest of the week. We enact the one another's of Scripture with our fellow church members. We spread the gospel to the people that we come in contact with. We deepen our faith through prayer and Bible reading every day. 
We are zealous about not only knowing his word, but trusting his word, building our lives on his word, following through and executing what he's told us to do. We're serious about who we claim to be as citizens of God's family. But we pursue that citizenship as he intended. That's the second action we take in light of this commandment. We pursue citizenship in the people of God as God intended for us, through Christ. Though we do aim to avoid hypocrisy, we don't boil our faith down to our works. We don't boil our faith down to our own ability to nail it. The fullness of what we believe isn't, oh crap, now I've really got to do this. The fullness of what we believe is Christ already did this for us in the fullest sense. And now I am able to pursue his life with every instance, with every day, with every moment that I might have now. Though we aim to avoid hypocrisy, we don't boil our faith down. We continue in the faith by the grace of Christ, just as we entered it by the sacrifice of Christ. And we know that we will enter into heaven by the mercy of Christ. We know it's Christ all the way down. No matter how far in we press, Christ is who we're going to find. Acts 4.12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So no, we don't take his name in vain through hypocrisy, but we absolutely do take his name. We press into his person and work through which we're saved. And finally, the last thing we do in light of this command today is we pay the cost of following Jesus. He encouraged us to do so, and now we not only count the cost, we pay it. Whatever it takes to take his name, but not to take it in vain, that's what we do. That's what we want. If that means no house, no bed, no family comforts, well, that's the cost we pay. If that means losing our own life for the sake of the gospel, then that's what we pay. If that means taking up our cross of suffering and persecution for Christ's sake and his name, then that's the cost we pay. And I think when we surrender to God in that way, we'll find the sweet reminder, the sweet comfort that everything we might be asked to do, Christ has already done for us. Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, just to save sinners like you and me by grace through faith. There's nothing we might be asked to endure that he has not already endured. There's no failure we might have, no hypocrisy we might commit that's going to shock him or that he didn't already pay for. So now, in response to that, we pay the cost, whatever it is, because he has already paid the cost and paid it in full. That's what we do. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to hear your word with your people, to be able to worship you, to be able to take your name, and then to follow through and not take it in vain. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, who fulfilled every letter of the law completely, totally, and perfectly. Thank you for the chance now to respond to that fulfillment with repentance and faith through which we're saved, not by our own works, not by our own ability to fulfill it in response, not by our own ability to not take your name in vain, but in truth, but based on Christ's fulfillment, based on Christ's sacrifice, his mercy, his grace for us. 
Help us to be a people who follow through in word and deed, since we claim to be yours. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.